Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann, and I am filling in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject all week long. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. Some of you may know me from VH1 Couples Therapy with Dr. Jen or VH1 Family Therapy with Dr. Jen, or maybe you've heard me on the Dr. Jen Show radio show for many years. I'm an author. I've written books like The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's Six-Step Guide to Improving Communication, Connection, and Intimacy. Super Baby, 12 Ways to Give Your Child a Head Start in the First Three Years, The A to Z Guide to Raising Happy, Confident Kids, and the children's book, Rockin' Babies, which I co-wrote with my mom, lyricist and Grammy Award-winning songwriter, Cynthia Weil. I also have a column in InStyle magazine called Hump Day with Dr. Jen that comes out every Wednesday that is all about sex, love, and relationships. I'm a mother of twins, but most importantly, I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and I'm here to answer all of your questions. And I want to talk a little bit about relationships and about, you know, I know that it's not a real clinical term, but we use it all the time, toxic relationships. I get a lot of questions from people asking if their relationship is toxic, if they should stay in it. And so I want to take the time to talk a little bit about what makes a relationship really unhealthy and what constitutes ultimately what should be a deal breaker. And, you know, all couples, no matter what the relationship is like, need to know how to work through conflict and fight fairly. You know, I have a whole chapter in my book, The Relationship Fix, about how to fight fairly. And what we know is that the ability to fight fairly not only predicts the likelihood of a breakup, but also a couple's future health. And actually, researchers at the University of Utah found that 93% of couples who fight dirty will be divorced in 10 years. So you really want to make sure that you when you have conflict, because all couples do, pretty much all of them do, that you handle them well. And to talk about what I call the dirty dozen relationship killers. And these are behaviors that are so serious that they prevent a couple from being able to develop a close relationship and a safe connection, no matter what else is going on. The first is emotional unavailability. You just can't have a relationship with someone who's unable to be giving, loving, present, and who constantly pushes you away. The second is addiction or compulsive behavior. I always say where there is addiction or compulsivity, intimacy cannot exist. This kind of behavior puts a wall between you and your loved one, your partner, and also it involves a lot of secrecy and lying. And if Someone is in the midst of that. You can't be close up. Mental illness. Now, don't get me wrong. Look, we all have our mental health issues. And you can have a relationship with someone who is mentally ill, who is in treatment, who is on the proper medication. But there are certain mental illnesses that make a person just completely incapable of having an adult relationship. And if they're not willing to get treatment, then they're not going to be emotionally present. They're not going to be connected. And I'm not talking about like depression or anxiety or even like bipolar. I'm talking about really extreme stuff. And also when people are unwilling to get help, which is the next one in the dirty dozen, which is that unwillingness to get help. If your partner has a serious problem that's hurting the relationship, he or she has to get help. For example, if she's depressed and unwilling to seek out help, nothing's going to improve without treatment. And you should not be expected to stand by and watch someone self-destruct if you have 
tried to help them and nurture them and encourage them to get help, but they refused to do it, it's unlikely that anything is going to change. Number five is abuse. Any kind of abuse, whether it is physical, emotional, or sexual, is totally unacceptable in a relationship. If your partner has hit you once, there is always the possibility that he or she will do it again, and you will never be free to be totally honest with that person again. The sixth thing is habitual cheating. People make mistakes, and while cheating is never okay, you should always keep your commitment with the the person that you're in a relationship with. There's a really big difference between someone who messes up once and someone who has a pervasive habit of cheating. The latter shows a pattern of hurtful behavior, poor impulse control, and a lack of honor. And that is something that you do not want. The seventh is a lack of character. You know, spend a lot of time as a therapist teaching people relationship skills. And you can even teach relationship skills to your partner, but you can't teach character. What you see is what you get. And when you're dealing with adults, you should not have to teach them impulse control, integrity, kindness, or compassion. There are just kind of some core tenets that you got to expect an adult will have. The other is compulsive lying. Whether it's a sign of a lack of a conscience or a full-blown antisocial personality disorder, this is a deal breaker. If you can't trust your partner to tell the truth, your relationship is doomed. The ninth is it's always about them. There are a lot of times in a relationship where one person is going through a crisis and a couple needs to focus on that person and their needs. But when you have a partner who constantly talks about themselves, doesn't ask about your life, doesn't care about your opinions, always makes it about them, you have a problem. This kind of narcissism makes it difficult to connect and unlikely that the person can show empathy, which is a crucial ingredient for a healthy relationship. Ten, there's no learning curve. All couples make mistakes in their relationship, but the key is being able to learn and adjust as a result. If you have a partner who makes the same mistake over and over again and doesn't change their behavior, you have a problem. Eleven, you can't have a friend or a support system. Typically, abusers like to isolate their victims. People like that don't want their partner to have friends, family, or a support system. And taking that away makes it very difficult to leave if things get really bad. If you have a partner who doesn't want you to have any friends or family who care about you in your life, that is a huge red flag. This is different than someone who calls you out on an unhealthy friendship or person in your life who they notice takes advantage of you. This is someone, I'm talking about someone who tries to isolate you. And then number 12, last but not least, they're unwilling to look at their stuff. If you have a partner who's constantly defensive and blaming others for problems in their life, you have a toxic situation. Without looking at how we contribute to the problem in our own lives, we can't change negative situation. This also translates to the relationship and an inability or unwillingness to examine how one's behaviors contributes to problems. If you find that your partner is exhibiting a number of these different symptoms and problems that I just named, you want to really reevaluate. And if you feel like you don't have the strength to make a move, I encourage you to get therapy to really help yourself to look at what is going on. I'm Dr. Jen Mann sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject. They will be back from their vacation next week. Coming up, 
I'm answering a question from Sarah, who's having trouble getting affection from her partner, who won't kiss her, he won't hug her, and she's getting fed up. Drop the subject. The new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann, and I am filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject today. I will be answering all of your questions and offering you advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, at Dr. Jen Mann, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So I got an email from someone we'll call Sydney, and she writes and she says, hey there, Dr. Jen, hopefully you can give me some advice. So my boyfriend of three years is not the most affectionate person. We live together and have a one-year-old and we're very happy. The only thing that really bothers me is that he is not affectionate. I'm not asking for kisses, hugs, compliments 24-7, but I'd kiss him every now and then or throughout the day, and I'm always someone who initiates the kisses. He says he's just not used to it. Yesterday, I was leaning in for a kiss, and he said, oh my God, another one? Sometimes I don't want to. Okay, I respect that, but the way he said it, it seemed to be like kissing me was such a damn problem. So he doesn't want me to hug him, compliment him, or kiss him. W-T-H. I've asked him to meet me halfway, but I also don't want fake attention. I don't get compliments. And again, I don't need 20 a day, but say something. With our son, he has no problem showing affection. He kisses him all the time. He tells him how much he loves him. He's very vocal with him. I'm not saying I want to be treated like our child, but can you throw some love my way? I'm not sure what to do anymore. He has his issues and he knows it. He's been seeing a therapist for a bit for over a year and has come a long way, but this seems to stay the same. I've been a fan since you started doing shows with Allie on Drop the Subject. Thank you, Sydney. Well, Sydney, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So look, this is a tough situation. It's very hard when we have a partner who is so resistant to meeting what feels like a very simple need to us. And when you ask the question, you know, why is he not affectionate? Why are people sometimes not affectionate? There's no one single reason. A lot of the time, a person grows up in a home where people are not affectionate, so they don't tend to do what was not modeled to them, or it makes them kind of uncomfortable since they didn't grow up with hugs and kisses and that kind of affection. Some interesting studies have found that self-esteem is a huge factor and that people with low self-esteem are less inclined to believe that their partners experience emotional benefits from their affection and that they have this misperception and that that inaccuracy and that bias makes them not want to do it. There are also a lot of people with low self-esteem that are afraid that they'll get rejected. I think that there are some people who are afraid unconsciously that They might actually really like it, and then it might be withheld from them. I think it's particularly interesting that he is affectionate with your son, but not with you. So to me, what that says is that there's something different for him in the meaning of being affectionate with a woman. And I don't know if he's got mother issues to work through or if it's hard for him to connect maybe sex and vulnerability and affection and emotional intimacy. It's a very complicated combination for a lot of us. But, you know, what you have to realize is that you can't force him to be affectionate. 
You, you can let him know how good it makes you feel. You can encourage him. You can inspire him. I recommend rewarding him when he actually is affectionate on those rare occasions or even when he's receptive to your affection. You always want to reinforce in as many ways as you can. You guys may want to try reading that Love Languages book together. Clearly, affection is one of your love languages. Perhaps if you guys are able to discover each other's, if he can better understand what his own love language is and you can meet his needs there, he may understand better why this is so important to you and that this is just not a language he speaks, but in being a good partner, he needs to try to learn how to do that. You know, you say, I don't want fake affection. I disagree with you on that. And what I mean is that Sometimes when someone's learning a new behavior or they're doing something they didn't grow up with, that there's a period of time where it just feels unnatural, but they're doing it for the right reason. They're doing it because they love their partner and they want to meet their partner's needs. So I say, let him fake it till he makes it. If he is not comfortable, but he's willing to do it, don't put any more barriers in the way, like just accept it. Even if it doesn't feel as authentic as you might like, it takes time to get more comfortable with that kind of affection. And I think that he is going to need that time. And you've got to be careful not to interpret his reactions as rejection. And I do think that you may want to do two things. One is respect his boundaries a little better. It sounds like you're getting in his space a lot. If he's like, oh my God, another one, you know, like sometimes I don't want to. I think you need to read him better just because you like affection doesn't mean that he does. And then second, I think you got to find a way to meet in the middle where you may not be getting as much affection from him as you would like, but where he's willing to do more. So I think that that is your best road to resolving this issue and I think you're going to have to be very patient with him because this is very unfamiliar and uncomfortable for him. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I am here on Drop the Subject filling in for Allie and Dr. James. Don't go anywhere. We've got more Drop the Subject coming up next. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Hey there, this is Dr. Jen Mann and I am sitting in all week long for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and I'm answering questions and giving advice and I am on the line with Gilbert. Gilbert, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dr. Jen. You got it. What is going on, Gilbert? So I had a question about screen time with my 20-month-old. You, I had heard you on a show previously, and you talked about lack of screen time until kids are around three. And mm-hmm. my wife and I are adamant about that. But in this interesting time we're all in, in isolation and not seeing family members and friends and loved ones, we've had to be creative. And one of those creative yeah. resources we use is, is FaceTime, Zoom, pictures, digital pictures. But it involves screen time. So my question to you is, where do you draw the line? What are your thoughts on this? What is too much? Yes. And I love your question. Look, even just the fact that you read my book, Super Baby, 12 Ways to Give Your Child a Head Start in the First Three Years, that you're being conscientious about screen time, like right off the bat, kudos to you. Your child is very (laughs) lucky. So really to answer your question, what we know is that in general, kids watch too much TV. Kids that are not your kids watch way too much TV that most kids by the age of actually 
three months that 40% are regular viewers of DVDs, videos, they're doing screen time. By the time they're two years old, almost 90% of kids in the United States are spending two to three hours in front of the screen. And that 51% of families leave the television on some or most of the time, which makes it a constant background noise for kids. So the good news is that you're not letting your kid do that. And, you know, for those who haven't read my book, just to understand that what we know is that doing this, letting your child watch TV and have screen time actually prevents language learning. And there's a study that came out in the Journal of Pediatrics that found that for every hour per day that babies 8 to 16 months old were watching infantainment DVDs, which is like Brainy Baby and Baby Einstein and all of those, they knew six to eight fewer words than other children. And what we know is the more you are reading to your child, the more you're talking to your child, even just narrating what you're doing. Now I'm going to change your diaper. Oh, I'm turning you over. You look like you didn't like that. We know that when TV is on, that kids are they're not acquiring language. And also TV as background noise is like the worst of the worst, because what happens is kids are too distracted, that even the language you're then speaking to them is not as clear to them. So the studies are showing the kids aren't gaining language in the same way. When it comes to FaceTime and Zoom and all that sort of stuff, I haven't read any studies recently that really look into that. I think that what is better about it than Baby Einstein or Brainy Baby or one of those is that it's interactive. To me, that's a little bit better. I wouldn't do hours of Zoom calls and FaceTime calls. I think that you and your wife may need that to kind of keep you from going crazy while you're sheltering in place. <laughs> and it, it sounds like you're, you're in a kind of a remote place. But what I would recommend is really be mindful of how many minutes, how many hours a day, a week that your child is spending in front of that video. And also pay attention to, is he really grasping there's a person on the other side that's interacting? Or is he just kind of zoned out? Like, you know, a lot of the time when kids are watching TV, they go into it almost, it looks like, like zombies. They just like a like trance almost. Exactly. Like they're not blinking. They're just staring. If he's doing that, then what I would say is he's probably not really cognitively able to understand that this is interactive. And I would say I wouldn't bother having him do it because there aren't gains and there may be things that are harmful in terms of his language acquisition. So, and look, anytime we're putting kids in front of the screen, it's not great for their eyes, they're being sedentary, all that sort of stuff. At the same time, I also know you and your wife probably need a bit of a break. Well, no. So I, I can say, I mean, it, it's yeah. not a break because he's yeah. incapable of holding the phone or the computer by yeah. himself. Right. But what I can say confidently is he is extremely interactive, but the moment he starts to fuss and run around, we cut yeah. the calls, but we do feel it is extremely important for him to see family that for he's sure. gone six yeah. or seven months without seeing now. So, you know, look, I, I think that even if he's sitting on your lap, it, it's it's a pseudo break for you guys because he's sitting on your lap. You're in, yeah. engaging with someone else. Someone else is entertaining him. He's not, you're not chasing him. Look, 19 months, 20 months, like that is the time in their life where they have the most energy ever. I remember reading that between, I think it was like 18 months and three years old, 
it's the most energy you'll ever have in your life. And I remember when I was chasing my daughters who are twins, just thinking like, they really do have more energy. Like they have way more energy than I do. Like, I don't know how I'm going to keep up, but you know, it sounds like you guys are doing a really great job and, you know, just be mindful about it. And the minute he seems to, to lose interest, I would just take him in another room and kind of move on. But it, it sounds like you guys are really, really great parents. And I commend you and congratulate you. And Gilbert, thank you so much for calling. Thank you. You're a rock star. Ah, thank you. I am Dr. Jen Mann, and this is Drop the Subject. I am sitting in for Allie and for Dr. James, who will be coming back from vacation on Monday. And I will be right back after this break. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and I'm filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject today. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann. So I want to talk a little bit about something that was in the news, more like entertainment news, but it does bring up a really interesting topic that has come up a lot in my private practice and also with a lot of my girlfriends over the last, I'd say probably two years or more. And a story came out that said that Kim Kardashian inspired Paris Hilton to freeze her eggs. And What's interesting to me about the story is, first of all, I think it's great that she's talking about it publicly and that it's really kind of putting it out there and being very open about what she's going through. And Paris Hilton talked about her plans for a family in the future, that she's 39 years old and that she decided to freeze her eggs after having a conversation with Kim a few years ago, which I think is really smart. And that she mentioned that Kim introduced her to her doctor and that she was really inspired and actually went to do it and has had a really good experience and is really looking forward to being a parent. Right now, she's dating Carter Ream. Hasn't been that long, but she says that she thinks he's going to be a great dad one day. Hey, may he end up being the father of your children. More power to you. But what I think is really interesting about this story that is more relatable than most people would think, and I'm going to get into that in a minute, is that women today are freezing their eggs and that this is something that's happening more and more. And it's not just wealthy women. Look, I understand, obviously, if you are in poverty, if you are really struggling to put food on the table, it's not an option for you. But I have encountered a lot of women who were having their own financial struggles, but hit a certain point in their life where they said, like, I really want to have this ability for the future and took out loans, were able to get low interest loans, or were able to get help from unlikely sources or sell something or do something that allowed them to be able to do this or make a payment plan. A lot of these fertility doctors have payment plans. So I would say at least a dozen different friends and clients who have frozen eggs in the last probably year and a half, maybe two years. And they've all had very good experiences. Some of them, it was a more difficult experience physically than the other. But every one of them afterwards has said to me, I'm so glad I did that. It felt like a really empowering thing to do. I think that this is such a great thing and so incredibly empowering to women to be able to have the opportunity to freeze eggs. I know I'm going to encourage, I have two daughters who are 13 years old, twins, 
I've always told them when you hit 25, let's freeze those eggs. Like we let's put them on ice just so that you don't have to feel that pressure. Cause I think that a lot of women feel pressure because there's a biological clock ticking and you read all of these statistics about the drops in fertility at certain ages, especially 35 and 40. And it can create enormous anxiety for a lot of people. And a lot of people also don't realize that this is even an option. You know, and well, some people will freeze an egg with a donor sperm. A lot of people now, and this is newer technology that has become a whole lot better. A lot of people are now freezing the egg without the sperm because they want to be able to implant that, implant that with someone who they will have a future relationship with, a future husband or something like that. I kind of think that it should be a new thing that they, that you can check a box on a dating app, like egg frozen, yes or no. I think that it's great information because a lot of the time there are people who are picking a partner and thinking like, oh, I don't want someone above a certain age because I like to be able to have biological children because that's something that maybe is really important to them. And they may rule out someone that could be a great partner that could be really compatible with them because they make assumptions that they are not going to be able to because they are of a certain age. So I, I think that this is really opening a lot of great options for women. It is something that is important to talk about. And again, I also think that don't assume if money is tight that this is not an option for you, that there are a lot of possibilities. And the amount of pressure that I have seen this take off for a lot of women is really enormous. And I think that that in and of itself, if it's remotely possible for you, and it's something that you want to do is at the very least worth looking into, because who needs that pressure? You know, life is, is difficult enough. And also to be able to have the ability to make the timing right for you when you want to have a child and not have to feel that pressure of your age, I think it is a beautiful thing. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I am sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject. Coming up next, I'm answering a question from Phil, who is trying to get out of a relationship after their partner refuses to change. Drop the subject. The new channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. You may know me from VH1 Couples Therapy with Dr. Jen or VH1 Family Therapy with Dr. Jen. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and I'm filling in for Allie and Dr. James today. I will be answering your questions and offering you tons of advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, at Dr. Jen Mann, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So I've got an email here from a caller who identifies, we'll call her as Delana. And Delana writes to me with a pretty intense problem. And says, a few nights ago, my partner got angry again and got nasty again to hurt me and said something about my child. Oof, that's hitting below the belt. I am sick of the I can't control it. I am working on changing that. My daughter is 17 years old and that's who he insulted. However, it wasn't said to her or around her, but I did tell her when I broke it off the relationship. We have been dating on and off for three years. We do not live together and we couldn't because of this very reason. I left my kid's father for various reasons, but mainly ended due to not wanting my kids to grow up to be like him. I couldn't and wouldn't proceed with merging families. 
because he has his own kids who he also speaks nasty to. And because I didn't want my kids to be exposed to that. I know that he is capable of change, but does not make a structured plan to change it for the long term. He's gone to therapy before, but again, seemed to end when we got back together. He's made statements that he's back in therapy, but I told him he's got to do this alone without my support because I do not want him to think or believe along with myself that that is good enough. I like that. Because what he said about my daughter had hurt me so bad that I wonder if there now could be a future due to these long stemming issues with his inability to control his temper, how he can argue in a healthy way, along with a negative outlook on a lot of things. He's got very deep issues that no one with a degree can work through. I really like that. He's got I'm going to say that one more time because I just think it's so great. He's got very deep issues that no one without a degree can work through. I love myself enough and more so now. I'm able to walk away not because I have someone else to fill his spot. I've done that because I was lost and have grown from that. Your response is helpful and I look forward to it, Delana. Well, first of all, Delana, it sounds like you have a lot of wisdom and that you have really, you're someone who has learned from her mistakes and grown as a result and who is really questioning whether this is the right situation for her. Even though you've gone back and forth so many times, it sounds like you're pretty out at this point and have a lot of reservations about going back in. One thing I do want to say is, or really ask is, why did you tell your daughter what he said? You know, what he said sounds like it was pretty nasty. And telling her only hurts her self-esteem and makes her feel responsible for the breakup, even if it wasn't her fault, because kids tend to be egocentric. Even though she's 17, she's still, she's a teenager, she's not an adult. And that when we're kids, we tend to blame ourselves for adults' issues. So I wouldn't have told her that. So that's just kind of a side note. It's interesting you said that you've been dating him on and off because of his anger problem. That says a lot that for three years, you guys have gone back and forth and that you've also said that you haven't moved in together because of his anger problem, because of the way he speaks to his kids, which, again, is his anger problem. His anger problem with you, his anger problem with his kids, his anger problem with your kids. Like This is a huge problem. I agree with you. With no plan of action, nothing will change. Getting into therapy just to manipulate someone to come back into a relationship with you and then stopping therapy is not going to change anything. And I think that that sounds like what he has done. This is a guy who needs long-term therapy and he also needs anger management. You know, he should be in a weekly intensive program and he needs to address the anger on a deep level of what got him here, why is he so angry, what happened in his family system, that he has all these resentments and this poor impulse control. And he also needs to address it behaviorally. What does he need to do differently? What does he need to do when he gets angry to make sure he removes himself before he does damage? So it sounds like he is operating on a very unconscious level. It sounds like he is very lacking in maturity and emotional discipline. And it seems like the only changes he's made have been to get you back into the house and then everything goes back to the way they were. In order for something to change, especially with a long-standing problem like this, which is really a habit, and I suspect he probably comes from a family where people 
spoke like this to each other. But change requires long-term hard work and shifts in both thinking and behavior. And I think that you're right on to not go jumping back into a relationship with him and let him prove himself to you before you even consider. Let him get a year of therapy and anger management before you even consider going back in. Let him do the work before you even contemplate spending time with him. In the meanwhile, go out there and date and see if you can find a nice person who is not so angry and mean. Delana, I wish you the best of luck and stay strong. You sound like a very strong woman who's ready to make a change in her life. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I am sitting in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject. Coming up next, very interesting guest, Caroline Miller, joins us to talk about her book, Creating Your Best Life, and the importance of how to generate happiness in a time of anxiety and depression. This sure is relevant to all of us right now. Drop the Subject. The new channel Q. Hey there, welcome back to the show. I am Dr. Jen Mann. I am sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject. And I have with me here a really amazing guest who every one of you is going to want to know all about what she does because it is applicable to absolutely every person on this planet. Her name is Caroline Adams Miller. She is one of the world's leading experts on the science behind successful goal setting and the use of what she calls good grit to achieve hard things. For more than 30 years, she's been sharing research-backed, actionable strategies to help people cultivate more grit and dig deeper to clarify and achieve their toughest goals. I mean, after all, who does not want that? Who does not want to achieve their goals and have more grit? So Caroline, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for spending some time with me because I have so many questions for you. Oh, gosh. Thanks for having me. Let's dig in. Okay. So in your book, Creating Your Best Life, The Ultimate Life List Guide, which is a bestseller, it's considered to be one of the top books when it comes to goal setting. You talk about lists and help me to understand and for our listeners, how do you use lists to reach goals. Okay. So when I wrote the book back in 2006, 2007, we focused on life lists, bucket lists. What do you, what will you regret not doing? Now what uh, I've evolved to talking about is really important. And that is checklists because what most people don't understand that I included in creating your best life is goal setting theory. And I think everyone on this planet absolutely has to learn goal setting theory because we live in a time when people don't know how to set, pursue, and achieve goals. And it's a time when I think this is the through line to dealing with anxiety, depression, and overwhelm. And so I talk now about checklists as they pertain to goal setting theory, and that is performance goals and learning goals. They're different, and it's important to know the difference. What is the difference? Okay. So the difference is that not all goals are created equal. And most people, when they think of goal setting, they think of, I want this outcome by this date. And if I don't achieve it, I have failed. And that only applies to what we call performance goals. And those are things that we've done before and we've done them well. We've done them successfully and we can come up with a checklist that we could probably teach to somebody else. And they too could accomplish that goal. So performance goals are things you've done before. And that's the only situation in which you can say, I will have this outcome by this date 
state and I know because I've done it before and I keep getting better at doing this thing. Problem is that most goals are learning goals. And what that means is that we haven't done it before. We've joined a new company. So it's a whole new team of people around us. I mean, think of a, a quarterback being traded to a new team. And even if they've been a quarterback somewhere else before, it's a learning goal because they have to learn, play with other people, a new playbook, et cetera. When you're in a learning goal condition, it's called a do your best condition because you cannot expect or hold yourself to the same standards you hold for a performance goal. And so when you reframe goal setting in this way, and you can create a checklist for a learning goals, you learn the steps of doing something, you can eventually get to the point where you turn it into a performance goal. And here's the PS for the world right now. This is why I'm on, on fire about this. We are all in a vast learning goal condition right now. And even if we've done things before, whatever we've done professionally, we are now in a learning goal condition because you can't do anything that you did before the pandemic in the same way. Everything yeah. is different, how we connect with people, et cetera. So we must know the difference. That is such a great point. And I think it's also so applicable, not just to our goals, but even our relationships. That <laughs> It's like the way yeah. we have to connect in our relationships. And, and I'm a big believer in even creating relationship goals, that it's important to have goals on how we can be a great partner, how we can be a great parent, all that sort of stuff that in a pandemic, all of this has changed. And what we need to do has really changed. It's a great way of conceptualizing it. Right. And you're absolutely right about relationships. All relationships should have goals attached to them. You, there has to be a focus to what is it that you're doing in this relationship. And it could be something like bringing a smile to someone else's face. But in the dating situation, the world we're in now, and I, I watched one of my children go through this, she started in person talking to somebody and dating, and then it was six months on Zoom. And so how people are getting to know each other now is nothing like what it was before, maybe back in the 1800s and the 1700s when you wrote letters or something, but it's a learning goal condition. So the ways in which you date, the ways in which you make sales, the ways in which companies remain connected to workers, Everything is now a learning goal condition, and we all have to flatten the curve around how we do it well and succeed at it. And you have to have the right metrics, and you have to be able to measure success. So it all matters. Caroline, don't go anywhere. We need to take a little break, and then we're going to come back. Talk in your book about mission statements, and I, and I want to get a sense of what is that? How can listeners use that to inspire them and to help them to reach their goals? I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. I'm Dr. Jen Mann, and welcome back. I'm here on Drop the Subject, sitting in for Allie and Dr. James, and I'm talking to Caroline Adams-Miller, the author of Creating Your Best Life, the Ultimate Life List Guide. Caroline, what is a mission statement, and why do people need to do it, and how can it be helpful in reaching goals? So a mission statement is one way of saying um, your North Star or what is the objective that you're trying to achieve. So mission statement is also like the so what, why are you pursuing this goal? And so the mission statement has to reflect the so what, and it's like, why are you going in that direction? So a mission statement should be worded in a very positive way, which is my mission is to add to the tonnage of happiness in the world. My mission is to show up as the most honest, creative person I can be in every situation at work and at home. Or my mission is to use my top character strengths throughout every day so that the people who work for me feel seen and heard. 
So that's a little bit general, but a mission statement ought to reflect your values. It ought to reflect the way in which you want to be seen and the legacy you want to leave behind. Now, that can be an umbrella uh, under which you begin to form other goals. But the value statement of how you want to be seen in the world, then when you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the ground, what is the thing pulling you forward that defines you and allows your values to sparkle. I love that idea of what makes you want to wake up, you know, what's your purpose in, in life. Should this mission statement, it should there be one that's separate for your personal life and one that's separate for your work life, or is it just one for everything? I think you can have more than one. However, I think it's useful to sit back after you take the Via Character Strength Survey and just look at, let's say, one. my top strength is the ability to love others and be loved back. So if that's my top strength, it's there because I've gotten a lot of value in life from it. I've shown up as my best when I use it. So my uh, mission statement is to make other people feel seen and heard and give them a reason to do hard things every day. So I can see how my love is showing up, my zest quality, and my perseverance strength. And so what I do is I wrap all of my top strengths together in a way that I feel I'm allowing myself to serve the world better. I think that can be used both personally and professionally. So I think people need to experiment with it, but our purpose shouldn't be about just self-aggrandizement. And you mentioned in, in your statement about kind of helping and inspiring people to overcome things. And you've written a lot about grit. And what is your suggestion for the person who is at home listening right now, who really has struggled to be more resilient and to develop grit? You know, it's such a big question. But um, when I wrote the book, Getting Grit, my focus was on helping people to identify the underlying character strengths and behaviors that allow you to do hard things and not be a quitter. Because coming out of the self-esteem parenting movement, what we found was the safe space, kind of trigger warning, um, dumbing down playgrounds movement of young adults who hadn't really ever been held to really tough standards unless they were in a sports situation or an athletic situation or a family actually held them to high standards. And so I think that it starts with do hard things. Do hard things that will allow you to use your strengths in the service of pursuing goals you will not regret. Because a lot of people play small in life, possibly because they've never been had to stretch themselves outside of their comfort zone in order to achieve something because they didn't have to. We have had a world get dumbed down around us where good enough has been good enough. And what you find when you look at the quality of grit is that this is the X factor that you see when it comes to how do you pursue and accomplish goals outside of your comfort zone. And those are the goals that are the game changers in life. When you ask people, what are the turning points in your life? It's never the easy things you did. It's the things you chose to do that were hard. You talk about building a culture of positive energizers. Like, What does that mean and how do you do that? So moods are contagious, emotions are contagious. We know this in positive psychology that we find that these are the things that catch between people. So all of us need to be surrounded by people who make us want to do more and be better. And one quick check-in you can do with yourself after you get an email or a phone call or an interaction with somebody is, do I feel better? Do I feel like I can do something I've never done before? Do I feel energized and hopeful about my future? Because one of the things we know from Dr. Shelley Gable at the University of um, 
California, Santa Barbara, is she found that the number one way to determine whether or not someone should be in your closest circle of supporters is how do they respond to your good news and to your hopes and dreams. The only one right way she found is if they respond with curiosity and enthusiasm. So all of the listeners of this show should have that little Rorschach test here going or this litmus test. When you share your good news with somebody, whether it's a mother or a sister or a colleague, do they respond with curiosity and enthusiasm or not? And if they do not, that is all the feedback you need to know about who should be the recipient of your your dreams, your goals, your good news. That's something all of us need to clean up and stop imagining people support you. Start getting evidence they support you. Uh, Caroline Adams Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show. Anyone who cares about developing grit, achieving their goals, succeeding in life, you need to check out Caroline Adams Miller's books. Uh, Caroline, where can people find you? In a pool <laughs> these days, <laughs> but also um, my website kind of has it all, www.carolinemiller.com. And thank you for asking because it's nice to be able to share that with people. So appreciate Absolutely. all the shout outs here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I am sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject, and I'll be right back. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. I am here filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject. I am so grateful to all of you for sending me your terrific questions. You can stay in touch with me on social media. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, the usual at Dr. Jen Man, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So I got this email from someone we'll call Mary, and she writes and says, Hey, Dr. Jen, my partner recently lost her mom to a terminal illness. I can see that she's struggling with her mental health, and I want to help, but I don't know how. She had been in therapy prior to losing her mom, and I think that she should go back, but I don't know how to tell her. I would appreciate any advice that you could give. Well, first of all, she's very lucky to have a partner like you that is really in tune with her and her mental health and really noticing what's going on and who cares enough to suggest therapy and to be there to support her. She's a very lucky woman. Uh, you sound like a very compassionate person, and that's really the first place to start, to come from a place of compassion, that anytime we suggest that someone get themselves back into therapy or start therapy that we want to come from a place of compassion so they don't feel judged. They don't feel like we're standing on a high horse pointing to them. It's always helpful when we can say, hey, when I went through this loss and I went to therapy, it was really helpful for me to be able to talk to my therapist. It really helped me to grieve and move through the process. If you've never been in therapy, then, you know, since she has, you can say, I really notice a difference before when you're in therapy. And this is a really big crisis that you're going through. And I think you could use some support. The other thing that would also be really good for her is a grief group. And there are a lot of places that have grief groups. One of the most well-known, at least in the Los Angeles area, is called Our House. They do terrific work with uh, all kinds of grief. They do grieving groups. They do children's groups. They do individual, all kinds of stuff. But it can be very healing to be in a room from a people who are also experiencing that same kind of grief because grief can be very emotionally isolating. Encourage her to reconnect with that therapist. 
reminder of that connection that they shared. I think that it is really helpful for her to be with someone who is familiar, who knows her history, who uh, she has a history with, and that can make the transition a little easier. It does sound like you are concerned about her and like you're worried about her mental health. And I think that it's really important that you let her know and that you also ask her what you can do to help support her and to really remind her that it takes a whole lot of strength to face your pain, to be able to talk about it with a professional, to be able to talk about it with you, to be able to talk about it with friends, that it takes an enormous amount of strength and that you believe in her and you believe that she has that strength. I also think that another helpful tool is bibliotherapy. It's for me, one of the things that I do when someone that I care about has lost someone they love is I send them some great books about grief and loss. You know, I love the book when bad things happen to good people, uh, surviving the loss of a love. Uh, Rabbi Stephen Leader wrote a book called More Beautiful Than Before about dealing with crisis and loss. There are a lot of great books out there and giving someone a book like that sometimes can help them transition into therapy or to better understand their grief. You know, grief is a process and it takes time. Typically what we go through is denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Those are the stages of grief and loss by a doctor named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And sometimes when you have a parent or someone you care about that has gone through a long terminal illness, like it sounds like, your partner's mom had, sometimes you start some of the grieving before that person passes away. Sometimes you do a lot of that beforehand. So people are oftentimes surprised after a prolonged illness when there's a part of them that may feel relieved. I'm so glad my mom is not suffering anymore. I'm so glad she's not in pain. She was really struggling so much and there's some relief in that. But What people often find is that the pain of their loss can sometimes even hit them even harder because they don't expect it. So I do think a grief and loss group, I think therapy, I think it's great that she has such a terrific partner like you. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm sitting in for Allie and Dr. James, and we have more Drop the Subject coming up next. Don't go anywhere. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann, licensed psychotherapist, filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject. I'm so grateful to all of you for sending me so many terrific questions. On today's show, we covered a lot of ground. We talked about everything from freezing eggs to divorce to can partners change to how do you deal with someone with anger issues. We covered a lot of ground. So I really appreciate you tuning in and spending time with me while Allie and Dr. James were out. They will be back on Monday. And if you miss anything from today, make sure to check out the podcast. Just search Drop the Subject wherever you find your podcast or at radio.com. Right now, children and their families all over Southern California are going to bed hungry. Channel Q and Radio.com have an easy way for you to help feed local students and their families. Text the word NEED to 76278 to give a buck and put food in the mouth of a hungry kid and their loved ones. Just $1 to make a huge difference. Learn more about Feed Our Families on our socials and at wearechannelq.com. 
Don't forget, Allie and James will be back on Monday. Thank you so much for tuning in with me. After this week, you can hear me every week on Drop the Subject, doing the segment once a week with Allie and Dr. James. You can also follow me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, at Dr. Jen Mann, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. And don't forget to follow the show at DTS, as in Drop the Subject show on all the social media. Thanks so much for tuning in. Drop the subject. The new Channel Q.